0: Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. For this podcast, I got to while away the rhymes of an hour with award-winning writer Dylan Coburn-Gray. Actually, we talk out of time, so the recording has become a two-parter. In the first part, which I like to call part one, Dylan talks about the everyday odyssey of city song and how hope is the baseline emotion of writing. He pulls into focus questions about authenticity, who gets to tell what stories, Who gets to play those characters. We talk about grief and the new perspective it affords you, the tiny triumphs of poetry and the telling sincerity of the city song cast. In the second part, that I call part two, we talk about beginnings. Dylan talks about growing up in a creative household, school days, early plays and the consequences of being an artist in Ireland. There's so much to listen and consider in this. There's a section in here where Dylan talks about the dissatisfied beauty of poetic pottery piling nearly good enough words onto nearly good enough words. It's poetry in itself, and it's all to play for. City Song captures the breath of the human condition in snapshots of recognition, big thoughts and small moments. The moment is the point. Be in this moment. Enjoy this podcast. Can I bring you back to the beginning and ask you about your upbringing Uh, for those folks who don't know your own folks uh, your father is Kieran Gray drama practitioner dancer and educator and your mother is Veronica Coburn theatre maker artistic director and director so with that kind of heritage am I right in thinking that it was a pretty creative household growing up?
1: Yeah it was Um, yeah Uh, I think the I mean the funny thing there is that I briefly thought I was going to escape theatre because I went to college to study music, uh, thinking I wanted to be a music teacher, and then kind of. uh, So I thought I was being a real rebel by you know jumping art forms, not actually escaping the arts. You know, like I didn't run away from the circus to be an actuary, uh, or I didn't even try. But um. uh, No, there was a lot of arts. You know, I went on tour with Barabbas in, the 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 mid nineties when they went to, New Zealand with the White Headed Boy. Um, got two weeks off school so I was delighted with myself and you know like lots of books around the house as a kid and everything possibly leads me to like remember how old I was based on what books I was reading at the time so I can tell you I was reading Tarka the Otter uh, when we were in Wellington on that tour and I had a Robin Jarvis book about the Deathford mice in my bag as well um, so 20 years ago also on that trip I read Firebringer by David Clement Davis which was a very good book and we had to leave it behind and I was heartbroken so I was crying um, but uh I think I remember having a very weird, very partial sense of what Barabbas did, because I wasn't allowed to see lots of their shows <laughs> as a kid. I do remember being really weirded out, seeing my mother kiss Raymond Keane and being like, he's not my dad. What's going on? Um, and uh, my dad was a teacher in my school. He's always loved contemporary dance, um, I think. So I would have done dance lessons and I joined Cush Games Youth Dance Company, um, kind of just Because I think the really interesting thing about uh, he subsequently did a master's in dance which is about uh, masculinities and making dance palatable to boys and some of the uh, well-intentioned but actually damaging things that people do there which is that thing that if you attempt to make it appealing by butching it up you actually just tacitly reaffirm that dance is inherently feminine and things that are feminine are inherently less worthy and are to be ashamed of um, whereas if you present it as a non-issue, which I think you very much did with me, you know, test subject uh, <laughs> zero, um, it, the question becomes not why, but why not? Why wouldn't you? So yeah, um, I joined Christian James' dance company, which kind of indirectly led to me getting the job in theatre. That kind of meant I didn't reach escape velocity and become an actuary in that because I could kind of dance a bit and play music a bit. Um, I got a job in Broken Talkers, The Blue Boy. And that toured for five years, and then you know it was five years of having one foot in the theatre world. And once one foot's in, you might as well stick the other in as well and write your own play. And, and that went pretty well. And
0: was there any hindrances um, with having, I suppose, all that, all those influences around you, you? Were you ever shy about bringing your work to them? Do you know, uh, because they were so successful? Yeah. Do you remember what the first thing you may have written was? What what it was about?
1: I think, no, the, the first play I wrote was uh, a Members One Act in DYT um, called And Then He Was All, um, and it was about young people the day after a party. Um, in that funny way, I kind of remember being incensed um, at this uh, uh, Youth Theatre Ireland, then NYD event, when it went into their playshare collection, where Alan King, who's a gas man, described it as, it's kind of like a, it's like, the, uh, it's like the hangover for... Dublin Teenagers and I was like how dare you this is profound art and now I read it and I'm like oh no 100% is the hangover for teenagers <laughs> <laughs> in Dublin uh, walking along Clontarf um, and even there it's just interesting reading it's like reading it going this is definitely not a play I would write now uh, you know for certain, there's certain political lumps and bumps that make me go ouch uh, casual transphobia no 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 um, but then actually the soul of it is kind of recognisably me. So that's kind of nice and really happily uh, Veronica and Kieran are sickeningly supportive. So I think I didn't cop until it was too late that I probably should be worried about what they would think, (laughs) which in a way, I think means you've done your job right. (laughs) You know, if your kids don't dread your disapproval. Um,
0: When did writing um, kind of start taking up your time?
1: Mm. Uh, I think after my first Professional production, which was Boys and Girls in the Dublin Fringe in 2013, which was Rosh's last year. Um, yeah, I had that very lucky but kind of complex thing of my first show went really well, so I didn't really have wilderness years, in the sense of wandering around going nobody gets my thing, you know, which is nobody acknowledges that you know like I know what I'm doing, that I have talent, that I this that and the other, um, which is not a complaint. Uh, for all that some people, I think, find that time really formative and actually affords you a level of freedom to work out what you care about. I think separate in the way I said before, you know, from that understandable urge sometimes to reverse engineer what you think you should be writing about from what you think people will want to see, um, which maybe is the thing they know they want. So that's precisely what you shouldn't write about um, because, you know, good writing always has a certain amount of surprise in it, maybe, or something, or unexpectedness. And uh, So I had that thing of the first play went really well and then pretty much instantly knew, oh cool, we should strike while the iron is hot, we should do more with this production. And I think the really tough thing is uh, in the current you know kind of climate where there is this dearth of, uh, I suppose, um, mid-level work or infrastructure to help you produce your work. Um, I think lots of really talented people know who they are as an artist at like 21, 22, but they have to wait five to six years for their production skills to catch up. Um, I feel that way because I feel like I was a little bit like that which was there were lots of things I knew I wanted to do and just didn't know how to actually make them happen for a bit but I certainly was trying so it's the kind of thing from when I was 21, 22
0: Does writing come easily to you?
1: Yeah I'm a I'm a swat um, and I think like I was saying I think lots of writers um, find actually sitting down and writing quite a fraught process I love it I love the bit. bits. Um, when I did the 24-hour plays in 2015, um, I was having school flashbacks because I was in a room with Kate Heffernan and Rush Gone and I was pretending not to have finished my play um, so as to fit in with the cool kids <laughs> when I had, in fact, written my play really quickly and had a great time doing it. Um, and, and in a way, it's kind of comforting and terrifying to feel like you stake your school self on some level. Um, but I love it. And I was just chatting to a friend of mine recently who finds writing really hard. And I said, I don't know, I think it's because they're very funny and very socially graceful. And uh, I kind of find big events challenging and uh, social situations quite draining. And I sometimes think maybe the reason I find writing so freeing is because um, uh, I feel my writing compares favourably with my public self. Um, So it is a better, more curated, more uh, well-adjusted version (laughs) of me or self-presentation, you know, via the things I care about. Whereas I think if you are naturally a very, very socially skilled, intelligent person you're very exacting on your writing and I suppose on how it reflects on you. So um, yeah, that's a thought.
0: Is there anything that you don't want to write about or that you're careful about not writing about or that you just can't go there?
1: Really, really interesting question there. I don't think there's topics I wouldn't. Um, I think I'd say there's topics I wouldn't unless I was working with the people it concerns most directly. So there's things, you know, I think where activists have said very clearly, nothing about us without us. So I think there's things there like um, displaced people, uh, sex work, um, where I think just doing your research is not enough. You actually need to have the people in the room. And I think to an extent race is that as well, um, which is, I think, if you want to really get into the nitty gritty of being a, having a particular racialized experience in a country in a year, you kind of actually can't just coast on oh it's a work of imagination you know. Um, beyond that I think there's certain acts or behaviours that I think I would write about but not in certain ways Um, during Waking the Feminists I think two speeches really stuck with me Um, one of which was well I mean they were all really consequential but two I've kind of had a real journey with and one of which was Joanna Crawley saying um, uh, repeating the gesture of abuse doesn't erase it and I think something that comes through really strongly from Malaprop and just working with five women is, uh, and two of whom are actors is just how deeply boring it is to get thrown around a stage in order to bear witness to the fact that women don't like being thrown around. Because um, do you know actually who doesn't need to be told that? Uh, women. Uh, <laughs> do you know? Um, do you know who doesn't need to spend two hours listening to have someone sh- have slurs shouted at them? People who know all about that already know I think I think you know a really fundamental quest- question in the Malaprop process and my process generally is like who's it for is it for the people who know all this already in which case why are we just picking the wound and if it's for people who don't know um, probably they don't need to just see it they need to understand it and understand it actually means coming at it obliquely and not just putting an abuser figure up on stage to abuse um, and a person up on stage to be abused by them if that makes sense mm. So I think, uh, yeah, I kind of think, let's absolutely write about darkness, but I think there's kind of a duty to afford insight and not just to, uh, I think proper leftists sometimes talk about uh, reminding us of the world's contingency, in the sense that things have and can be and will be otherwise, um, that racism is not inevitable, that sexism is not inevitable, that to be a woman is not to suffer in all places and all times, nor should it be. Um so I think that's the very, very macro political charge of I'm just really sick of watching people. Sorry to be a bit coarse about it, but I'm really sick of watching people do raped acting for two hours. Do you know? Um, I just feel like that actually shuts down our imaginations to imagine how things can be otherwise, if that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you want to achieve with your writing?
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first word that springs to mind is connection. Uh, I think the higher, if I set the bar any higher, uh, my pedantic, whataboutery, counter brain immediately starts picking holes. And I think the baseline from which all other kind of slightly more involved, long-term goals emerge from just come from connection. And maybe the really, really heavyweight word under that is truth. Uh, The work I love is a moment where you listen and you go, or you watch and you go, there it is. There's the truth.
0: What I want to ask you about is, was there a production that kind of turned your head in a different way? Made you see the world in a different way?
1: Yeah. If I think about productions, it's really interesting because some of them are quite late. But I feel sometimes you see things and actually the value in them is not that they show you the path but I suppose they shed a light on what you've just done and make you see, you know, I think kind of the, 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 the center of gravity that everything you've been doing has been orbiting. So there's a broken talk of the show, Have I No Mouth, about that Phelan Fe- and Gary made about Phelan's dad and his death, which I think was, I saw in like 2014, 2013. And I adore it. I just thought it was beautiful. Um, other productions. Uh, I think there was a Russell Maliphant dance show in the dance festival a couple of years ago, which again, just adored. Uh, Black Grace Dance Company had a showcase at the Edinburgh International maybe six years ago, which is beautiful. Um, Only one of those is like even remotely a play, which I think is kind of, I'm thinking about as I'm talking. Plays that I've really, really loved. Um, Lots of the plays I love I've only read. Uh, because I think it's quite difficult sometimes to see plays in Dublin. Although actually recently, you know, a play I really loved, you know, um, I thought just for its clarity was uh, I loved Philly Max's uh, "Come on Home." I thought that was a beautiful piece, and I thought uh, "Town is Dead" before that was really beautiful as well. He's a writer I really admire actually, because I think um, in a in a in his in a very different language, I think we kind of care about the same things. I think there's this the love of the particular, you know. Um, and the thing I've kind of said, I think, in a couple of press things for City Song, of thinking big thoughts in small moments, you know, which is Ten is Dead. I don't really think my memory of it is not of its plot. It's not of things going from point A to point D. It's just of all of these beautiful moments. And I said earlier, it's quite difficult to make a piece that's just moments. And in a way, I think Ten is Dead was pretty much there, it pulled it off. And it did that by using musical forms, by kind of going. And in a way, the music is a promise. It says, uh, yeah, this moment is self-sufficient. This is about the present. This, the meaning of this isn't, doesn't, isn't going to arrive uh, or isn't it going to be retroactive. You know, it's gonna, this is it. So just run with that. <laughs> um, and maybe, you know, a quote like that is, uh, there's a thing in the Michael Ondaatje book, uh, In the Skin of a Lion, where he says, the first line of every novel should be, um, there is an order here, very faint, very human. Uh, trust me, it takes time, or something like that. And he says, wonder if you want to get to town. And I kind of think yeah, like lots of my favourite works in some way have that quality, or that quality of trust me we're going to get there.
0: I have A couple of far, uh, quick fire questions just yeah. for the end of it. Um, you've mentored and taught, as you said, as a playwright in residence in GYT and most recently you've lectured at Trinity. Is there any one thing that you learned yourself that you try to pass on to your students?
1: Um, Again, sticking with the thing of like you know, I mean I I always feel glib saying it. I've heard and I kinda stole it from Tim Crouch, who manages to make it not sound glib. I heard him say it at the Pampan Symposium, which is I feel like the only honest place I can teach from is by saying, um, the only plays I can tell you how to write are plays I've already written them and terrible news, I've already written them. (laughs) Um so from from here it's very much peer mentorship or guidance or advice. Um and In that spirit, I think it tends not to be a specific lesson, but uh, I think just, you know, when young people are heading out through DYT, when you meet the young ones who kind of want to give it a go, or in college, who have kind of more decisively decided to give it a go, I think the really important um, uh, advice to give is, A, don't compare yourself to me, because I've had a really lucky time for several reasons, and I'm, I think, probably about a decade early in terms of where I'm at with how much I've written and how well it's gone. and that actually, the, the flip side of that is, uh, if you're finding it hard, it's because it is. You know, which is, I think very often with young people, it's mostly emotional stuff. And the information will sort itself out. They're really smart, you know? <laughs> you just need to, I suppose, declutter their way for them. Um, and I think that's it, yeah, which is, um, it is objectively really hard. And if it looks like someone is having an easier time of you paying their rent, they're probably not. Their parents probably on their gaff. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, um, or the Prince their gaff, or something? Everybody has a work around. You know, fundamentally, you don't make your living from your career. I don't make my living from my career, um, or I wouldn't if uh, I had to pay rent. I'm just about to start renting. I've had this great setup for two years in Trinity, where I was living in a student flat, well, which is the only reason I have as much time to write as I do. And yeah, and I think actually, you know, that's really important because it's so easy to look around and feel like you're messing up because you're not getting as far as quickly. Um, and I think it's really good just to go, you know, if it hurts a bit trying to be an artist, it kind of just means you're, your brain's well calibrated and that you're paying attention. Because it is crap. <laughs> that makes sense.
0: Do you see yourself, just say, as you talk about trying to earn a living, and um, being a writer, do you see yourself staying in Dublin?
1: I think... Uh, it's hard to imagine how, but I'd love to. Um, yeah, we'll see, you know. I think the future is a great big blank at the moment, um, and I kind of relish that because I feel I don't know that if it, if I knew much more about it, it would be very comforting. Um. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. So we'll see.
0: Final question, Dylan Coburn-Grey. What do you get out of writing?
1: Um... clarity. I think, um, yeah. And yes, I think there's a misunderstanding there to scarce, which is the idea that you write something down and then you're able to go, cool, that's how I feel. Um, I've just got a big tattoo and, uh, and I'm working with young people at the moment on the National Youth Theatre on a piece about faith and prayer. And so where do we keep talking about is ritual and we were talking at one point about how in different forms playing a piece of music and getting a tattoo and writing a play and performing a play and performing a spoken word poem are all rituals because their meaning isn't fixed Uh, their meaning emerges from repetition you know you don't do it because you know what it means you do it to find out what it means this time Um, and what it means this time is always in light of what it has meant before and what it might mean when you do it the next time Um, and I think in a way actually the beauty is that Very often meaning emerges from arbitrariness. Why this tattoo? Some reasons, but actually lots of it is out of your control and then it acquires meaning. And I think similarly, the lovely thing is you can write down a line you think is just a line and then look back on it five years later and go, oh, there I am. That's me. That was me all along. Couldn't see it at the time, but there I am. Uh, Or there's how I feel about this person, even if I didn't know it. it. I think the really interesting thing is it's not always biography when you write it, and then it becomes biography. Uh, so ritual, I think, uh, and clarity and meaning, Does that makes sense.
0: <laughs> it does make sense. Dylan Gray? let us stop before we start again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dylan, for all your time this morning. Uh, you're very welcome. <laughs>